0: Hello, I'm Nina Law.
1: And I'm Max Lydiot. We're psychiatry residents at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and this is the History of Madness podcast.
0: In this podcast, we will be telling fascinating stories from the history of psychiatry. In this episode, we will be talking about Freud's The Interpretation of Dreams. So I don't know about you, but if I had to name like one book from psychiatry i think the interpretation of dreams comes to mind
1: mm, mhm yeah it's not only a really significant book in the history of psychiatry but it's just like a like it's taught in literature classes like it's it's a really culturally significant book just in general
0: and i hadn't read um the interpretation no of neither have i and this is probably considered Freud's most significant work. And Freud even says that this is his most important work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I would agree. There's, it, You can see a lot of what would become his like overall theory of psychoanalysis is essentially all contained within this book.
0: But I think this book is very... It's difficult to approach. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a dense, complex book. And yes. it's definitely not the book for a layperson to just pick up and read
1: Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's very much like a it reads like well it's it's interesting in some places it reads like a very intimate and interesting discussion of like life in 20th century germany for a jewish person with all like different anxieties of becoming a professor and things like that but on the other hand it is very very in-depth and scientific that sounds a lot like you know earlier enlightenment works like wealth of nations something that's very difficult to read
0: (laughs) yeah it's like freud is almost confused is this a memoir is are these case studies is this a scientific treatise? And then he also keeps adding to to the different versions that come out over the years. So there are different layers to Mm -hmm. the Interpretation of Dreams that makes it hard to read. Sometimes
1: very different, in fact. Like, uh, some of the later chapters, I I looked up later, I didn't realize this when I was reading it, but have been fairly significantly revised, like, you know, 10 years after its initial publication.
0: Right, so it's kind of like Freud is telling you how you should read Mm -hmm. the Interpretation of Dreams.
1: What was your reaction to reading it, I mean, we kind of talked about it being maybe a little more dense yeah. than I initially thought when we approached it.
0: Yeah, and I would say we know a little bit more about Freud than people in the general public yeah. and theories of the basics of the theories of psychoanalysis. And we both read a lot, but it was still, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was still difficult to to read. But I I think even you know a hundred. 20 some years on i still find this book very relatable yeah freud's individual anxieties how he thinks about patients
1: that is absolutely what did it for me it's that same dichotomy that that we talked about just a just a moment ago it's that like man this is like what he's thinking about on a day-to-day basis, like when he's going to the market and buying flowers or bread or going into debt because he bought too much books when he was 17. Like, little things like that that are just so fascinating and vulnerable and, like, you know, anxieties about anti-Semitism, which was rife within his institution. That is fascinating. That I had... didn't cross my mind that freud like inhabited the real world in that way you know what i mean um so there's that on the one hand very intimate and very much involve themes of sex and insecurities that do not find their way into like most books for that part of the ce- that half of the century and then there's other parts which are like really frustrating like i don't know if this was just my edition but there were like whole passages that were printed in french Without a translation. And Freud just expected you to, to understand what to, it meant. To, to and there was French. this French, there was German, there was Latin. And it was like, oh God, I know like Freud speaks like six languages, but I definitely don't. It was very
0: insulting. Uh, and and I think Freud just being in the medical field and being a doctor, his anxieties are something we relate to. Mm. Where he reflects on, did I make the right choice? Oh, yeah. Or like... Um, am I going to be able to advance in my career? Yeah.
1: Am I missing a physical diagnosis in a patient with a mental health condition? Like, that is a very common anxiety that I have.
0: Yeah. Or like when he talks about one of his medical students' dreams where they're, like, wanting to get up in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> and They're missing their alarm. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's very relatable. Yeah. Alright, so I know we're talking about a book that you possibly haven't read yet, so we're going to go into a little bit about the general concepts in this book and then have a little discussion about it. But first, a little historical context about when this book was written. The book was published in 1900 and it only sold 600 copies of hmm. the first edition, which took eight years, Wow. so it wasn't a bestseller immediately upon release. And this was written by Freud over the span of four years. In our last episode on the studies of hysteria, we talked about how Freud had had a long engagement with his fiance. So Freud finally marries his wife and he quickly has six children in eight years. And during this time, he's becoming established in his practice in this niche of psychoanalysis, treating these patients with hysteria, doing a lot of this free association work. And he's also struggling to attain professorship in Vienna academic circles, which are still pretty anti-Semitic at the time. His father died in 1896. And this Mm. is another huge thing that happens in his life and triggers a type of crisis. And he's he's having a lot of recurring dreams at this time about his father and his relationship with his father. So his father dies and he becomes a father himself. Mm. So he's seeing birth. He's seeing death. And it leads to a lot of thoughts about life in general, about childhood. He's thinking about his own childhood. He's thinking about his children's childhood as they're living it. And so essentially, dream, what are dreams about? Freud's patients are mostly women and they talk about domestic life. So a lot of it is about childhood, it's about uh, marriage, relationships. And Freud thinks about all this. He treats the women and he has discussions with men about it. It's through his friendships with men. He writes letters to them expounding on this whole theory of psychoanalysis. So essentially psychoanalysis was born out of the conversations about women by men. Mm. And one of the most significant friendships that Freud has during this time is with an ENT doctor named Wilhelm Fleiss. Mm. So throughout his life, Freud has a series of close relationships with men, close friendships. Mm-hmm. In his younger days, he seeks out older men like Charcot, Brewer, who helped him in the basics of you know, talk therapy. But then at, during this time, he begins to distance himself from Brewer, and Wilhelm Fleiss is the next significant relationship in his life. Fleiss is pretty much the same age as Freud, And he finds this refuge from domestic life in his relationship with Fleiss. Their friendship is mostly through correspondence. And some of it, when you read it, sounds like love letters. So Mm. in one of the letters, Freud writes, You all together ruin my critical faculties, and I really believe you in everything. You are the only other at the altar. So these sound like passionate That's very intimate. Yeah. It's during this time that he is writing this book. He eventually breaks with flies too and
1: that's a pattern it, in his yeah, life it is as well a
0: pattern I was reading Freud by Jonathan Lear, which I highly recommend mm-hmm. and he theorizes that these broken male relationships are possibly a repeating pattern of his relationship with his his earlier relationship with his father and uh, he's trying to seek out some sort of male relationship that is significant but then he repeats the pattern of becoming his father and finding those relationships inadequate
2: oh how interesting
0: so the reason why the interpretation of dreams is significant is that it's not really a book about how to interpret dreams
1: so i guess you know starting from the beginning then like what was thought about dreams prior to freud
0: yeah so freud does this very extensive scientific review on all the literature that is about dreams, and he talks about what dreams mean from a conventional historical standpoint and also the modern thinking scientific thinking of the Mm -hmm. day so if you think about how historically people thought about dreams they are thought of symbolically like Mm -hmm. this symbolizes this omens, omens. And they're used to predict the future. A good example of this would be in the Bible. The Pharaoh has a dream about uh, seven lean cows, swallowing seven fat cows. And Moses prophesizes that this means seven years of famine will follow seven years of prosperity. Mm -hmm. So that, that is a very iconic dream from history, right? So that's how maybe laymen think about dreams, where it's almost like a cipher. Do you, do you want to explain what that?
1: Yeah. Is? So the cipher method of of dream interpretation is is something that he he draws on from a lot of like historical sources. So, for instance, the idea would be that if if some action happens in the dream, once you you know understand the keys of what what that meaning implies, for instance, like you know common thing in popular culture even now is that a dream of teeth falling out implies financial hardship. Um, whereas in the past, it might have been something like you mentioned the cows and that implies famine, or I don't know, like a, a specific object appearing in the dream, like a, a, a cross means like you're communicating with an angel or something like that. The, the idea is that um, some person with like secret knowledge, like a priest or a shaman, you could Take your dream to them. Tell them what happened. And by interpreting the clues through a way that only they would know how because they had this secret knowledge, they could essentially use like a cipher to, to solve what your dream meant or what it was going to mean or, or whatever.
0: Yeah. So that's what the general public thought of when it came to dream interpretation. And then the scientific field at the time thought of dreams as these are just random firings of Mm -hmm. your mental stimuli there is no psychological significance at all
1: yeah like there's a there's a line in charles dickinson's a christmas carol about like how the spirit you oh you must be just like a lump of potato or an undigested like something and that is that is drawing on that assumption that it is like the the actual things you're digesting are what is influencing your dream and that's it
0: Yeah. So Freud looks at these two theories and he says, well, no, I don't agree with either theory. Here is my theory of what dreams mean and how to interpret them. So going back to the cipher, so that was how people interpreted dreams. But Freud says, well, two people can have the same exact dream with the same exact content, but they can have completely different meanings. Mm. So the most important thing is not the content of the dream it's the interpretation of the dream and the self-interpretation of the dream so how freud approaches interpretation of dreams is he unites it with his earlier work on free association with people with hysteria and his idea about approaching dreams comes from this context where he's doing this free association with these women with hysteria and they start to bring up the dreams And they start to do this free association. And he builds on this essentially. And he says, well, when you have a dream, the most important thing is the context. What is the context in which this dream is happening? What did you do the day before? What are your anxieties and fears at that time? And you have to be the one who brings up these associations you're the one who starts talking with a guide of uh, an analyst, and Mm -hmm. you arrive at this conclusion. But if you just tell me the content of the dream, you can't really interpret it.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: What did Freud believe the dreams were?
0: The fundamental concept is that dreams are wish fulfillments, and they express what your wish is, in the dream itself, you obtain gratification.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So if you can think of yourself daydreaming, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and why you daydream? Because it brings you fulfillment mm. to imagine those things. But you don't actually want the things in your daydreams to happen. You just, you find a sense of pleasure in what you're daydreaming. So during the night when you dream, there are also unconscious ways of fulfilling your dreams.
2: Hmm. Okay. So to
0: illustrate this, let's discuss one of Freud's most famous dreams mm. in the interpretation of dreams. And it's his dream of Irma's Injection.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: this is the first dream that Freud analyzes in detail and arrives at the theory that dreams are about wish fulfillment. So I'm going to have Max introduce yeah. this dream.
1: So real briefly, that we mentioned context was very important. So the context that this dream took place in is Irma was a patient that he had previously done analysis on. Um, She had hysteria and ultimately the analysis was cut short essentially because she was not completely adherent to his recommendations and then there was like a summer holiday and so they kind of parted ways. And present in the dream are several of his physician colleagues as well. So the dream takes place at a party and Irma comes up to to Freud. They start talking and she seems really ill. Freud notices this and is concerned that maybe there's something else going on. So he takes her over to a window, looks in her mouth, sees classic signs of diphtheria. Another physician colleague of his auto comes over, looks in, confirms the diagnosis of diphtheria, starts like percussing her ribcage, and then suspects that there may be an underlying malignancy. Freud has this of anxiety that, oh my god, did I I've been treating her as hysteria. Maybe there was an underlying medical issue. He was concerned about that, and then the dream kind of shifts, and this physician colleague of his is, in the course of his examination, starts to talk about some kind of bizarre statement that, oh, you know, soon uh, dysentery will develop and they'll clear the infection out, which is kind of a bizarre dream logic thing that if she like essentially like diarrhea[s] it out, it'll be okay, and then references another colleague of his repeatedly giving her injections of propionic acid, which is not something that makes sense to Freud at the time, but he sees the label presented to him, and it's very clear. And this also kind of prompts a reference to the fact that this friend has actually been giving her injections repeatedly, um, and Freud, in the dream logic, knows that, oh, this must not have been a clean needle. So all of this to say, then, there's a lot of different components to it, but ultimately he's essentially had this failed treatment with this person who is then coming back to him for help. And through the context of the dream, they discover that ultimately it wasn't that Freud wasn't able to treat her hysteria. It's because she had a physical illness. And not only that, it was a physical illness that, again, in the dream logic, was caused by another one of his competent, physician colleagues. So ultimately, the dream, though it's complicated and on the surface seems very anxiety provoking and negative, ultimately it communicates to Freud that this is fulfilling the wish that I am not an incompetent analyst. I'm not an incompetent physician. I was right. I did the right thing. That That's kind of the gist of the dream. Now, there's there's a lot of details and what, what you'll see with dream analysis is that often like words matter a lot like you know the similarity to a common idiom will have some meaning so this this is a, a much more complicated dream with a couple of extra layers in there for instance like i didn't really talk about the importance of the fact that there was an injection and like he would recently had a, a colleague who died from a cocaine overdose that was injected that freud had kind of gotten him onto cocaine essentially so he had some guilt about that and there's there's a lot of like other layers in this dream that we're not touching for simplicity's sake but that's kind of the gist that it, it is fulfilling that
0: wish so when freud brings up this idea that all dreams are wish fulfillments he encounters resistance because immediately people will say but most of the dreams i have are unpleasant And I I do things in my dreams I would never want to happen. I dream of loved ones dying. I dream of things I would never actually want to happen. And Freud's patients are very intelligent. And they're able to challenge him when he brings this up. And so Freud comes up with this idea of latent content and manifest content. Essentially what this means, manifest content is the dream as a dreamer tells it. It's the surface layer content. Now latent content is what the dream is actually about. The deeper layer meaning that you arrive at only through dream work and working with an analyst. Um, So I think it'd be helpful if I talked about another dream briefly. This is one of the dreams provided by Freud's patients. And I'm going to read you the quote directly from the book so you can get a sense of His language and how he talks about the patient. Yet another dream of a more gloomy character was offered me by female patient in contradiction of my theory of the wish dream. This patient, a young girl, began as follows. You remember that my sister has now only one boy, Charles. She lost the elder one, Otto, while I was still living with her. Otto was my favorite. It was I who really brought him up. I like the other little fellow, too. But of course not nearly as much as his dead brother now i dreamt last night that i saw charles lying dead before me he was lying in his little coffin his hands folded there were candles all about and in short it was just as it was at the time of little otto's death which gave me such a shock now tell me what does this mean you know me am i really so bad as to wish that my sister should lose the only child she has left or does the dream mean that I wish that Charles had died rather than Otto, whom I liked so much better? So you see this female patient is very smart. She she comes up with her own interpretation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so this is kind of the surface level content. So the manifest content is that her little nephew, Charles, has died and is lying in a coffin. And so... Freud says that here is the actual interpretation. And it, it's really interesting because Freud, he knows his patients. He's seen them for a long time. So he knows details of their personal lives. And sometimes the patients will say, hey, is this the interpretation? And Freud is like, mm, I don't know. What about this? Which is, which is really fascinating because nowadays I feel like we don't know our patients as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, he knows a lot of them on almost like a personal level. So this particular female patient, she is still unmarried who proposed, but that was thwarted by her sister, but she was still in love with this man and he was a literary professor of some kind. And whenever he gave a lecture, she would go and watch him from the crowd and she would look forward to each of these meetings. So the day before the dream, she was looking forward to going to this concert that this man would also be at. And that night she has the dream.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And so Freud had asked her, you know, what was happening around that time of the dream. Now he tells her, this is a dream of impatience. You are dreaming of your nephew dying because then a funeral would occur. And then you would see the man who had come to give his condolences So it's a dream of impatience. You're wanting to see this man sooner. But why? Why is it delivered in such a convoluted way? And he calls this the censorship of the dream. So Mm. essentially, this wish that she would be able to see this man again is disguised in the sorrowful event of her nephew dying. So you wouldn't begin to suspect that this was actually a wish fulfillment.
1: Mm. So then through the, the analysis, you essentially pick apart the manifest content of the dream, things that you directly remember, and then get at whatever underlying things that that might imply.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think this is confusing for a lot of people. Why, if dreams are wish fulfillments, that they're so disguised? And Freud goes through a lot of different ways where dreams are disguised or censored throughout the rest of his book. So for example, he brings up, do you notice that most of your dreams are about indifferent content? Things that don't really matter. Mm-hmm. They're not always about your very emotional wrenching uh, type content. Or, you know, why is it that your dreams just don't outright in the manifest content, give you your wish fulfillment. For example, it's very rare to dream of actually getting together with the guy you love in your dream. Hmm. Right? Why why is that not the manifest content? And that approaches the idea of censorship, which essentially this is a way of resistance. Hmm. Because you have these dreams, but those wishes are forbidden wishes. So again, we return to the quote, the interpretation of dreams is a royal road to the knowledge of the unconscious activities of the mind. And Freud begins to introduce the topographical model of the mind in this book. We're all very familiar with the idea of the id, the ego, the superego, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That doesn't come until later, but in this book, he gives us a primitive model for that. And it's what he calls the unconscious, the pre-conscious and the conscious. So the way Freud puts it is that we have all these wishes, our primitive wishes in our unconscious. And then the pre-conscious is between the conscious and the unconscious and between the pre-conscious and the unconscious censorship occurs Hmm. so that it doesn't get to the conscious when you're awake, the conscious exercises this censorship of the unconscious wishes, and it's very strong. But at night, the conscious is weaker, and so that censorship is relaxed. Mm. And that's why all these unconscious wishes will finally find some release in the dream. But there's still that censorship from the pre-conscious. It's weaker, but still there at night, that's repressing these wishes. So you have these two systems acting against each other. And that's why censorship occurs because it represses your innermost wishes.
1: What are some ways that Freud speculates this censorship occurs?
0: He talks about all these mechanisms. One is like condensation, where all these different ideas will condense into one image. For example, Mm. different people's faces will melt into one central face displacement where you're dreaming about someone in the place of another person and because some neutral thing those emotionally indifferent events are less threatening to our pre-conscious that's why they make it into our dreams so you know passing by the bookstore and seeing a book that's like a very or seeing a botanical monograph something like that that's a very neutral thing that's something that your pre-conscious won't feel threatened by. Hmm. And so it takes these everyday things from your life that happened the day before and incorporates it into the dream. And it's because you have this indifferent thing that this indifferent thing acts as a disguise hmm. to mask what the underlying content is. Did that make any sense? That made
1: a ton of sense. Yeah. yeah. that That <laughs> is totally fascinating. And that actually makes a lot more sense to me now. And honestly, your explanation was a lot better than what I had read online. So that helps me understand it a lot. Um, one of the things where where this comes up a lot, like potentially one of the big criticisms of Freud is like anxiety dreams. So just to give an example, like uh, one of the common ones that I have is that I am in school, like elementary school, and I've forgotten to wear clothes or I'm late to class. A dream I've been having a lot lately is that I'm two hours late to see my patients and I'm wearing a t-shirt and shorts, but then I am stuck in traffic. And like dreams like that I have very frequently. What what wish is that? Is that trying to communicate? That there's like a whole nother like layer of meaning there I feel.
0: So the way Freud approaches anxiety dreams is that he says that you can have anxiety and still have your wish fulfilled at the same time. Hmm. Because essentially these are from two different systems. Your wish is the unconscious wish that is being fulfilled, but you have anxiety about it from your pre-conscious system.
1: So to to, to take that example, because Freud actually used very similar dreams for himself and for other people that he observed. So one component of that, not to necessarily analyze myself, but I kind of am, is that maybe one unconscious wish is that I be back in elementary school that I'd be, you know, cared for, that my cares are a lot less significant. And that is the, the biggest hurdle that I face is just being late. And then another potentially related, maybe unrelated wish is like the enjoyment of like running around naked when I was a little kid, like how freeing and fun that was. Maybe that is something that I'm wishing for, but I don't have a good way of expressing it. So I'm just like naked in school. And that causes secondary anxiety, because that is a weird and unacceptable thing for me.
0: It's funny that you say that, because the the dream of appearing semi clothed or naked in public is a very common dream that Freud actually analyzes. Mm. And what he is saying is that essentially this is a dream of exhibitionism. This is actually your true desire is to you know show off you know, your generals or whatnot <laughs> and, um, and it's kind of like you see all these little kids and they like like to flash you, and um, that's actually a primitive desire
1: a primitive as in that is potentially even a desire that I had as like a toddler that is still like subconsciously part of me,
0: yeah. Yeah. So it's
1: it's potentially even that that childhood desire, finding like an outlet.
0: But you've been taught that this desire is unacceptable. And that's why it has to be so disguised. And for example, you're not showing off your genitals to someone you like. You know, you're exposing yourself to these strangers usually. Right. Or people you're indifferent to. And that's a way of disguising the dream. Hmm. And I really enjoyed this quote. Freud when he talks about this this age of childhood in which the sense of shame is unknown seems a paradise when we look back upon it later and paradise itself is nothing but the mass fantasy of the childhood of the individual this is why in paradise men are naked and unashamed until the moment arrives when shame and fear awaken expulsion follows and sexual life and cultural development begins Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like your idea of maybe this was when I was naked and carefree
1: It's a rosebud kind of moment.
0: And Freud, he, he he's very well read. Mm-hmm. He references like Greek mythology, history, Shakespeare. And when it comes to the idea of being naked, he talks about Odysseus and how he arrives and he appears naked and covered in mud in front of Nausicaa and her playmates. So that's a scene from odyssey and i just love this quote so i'm just going to read it would you like to know what it means let us for a moment consider the incident closely if you are ever parted from your home and all from all that is dear to you and wander about in a strange country if you have seen much and experienced much if you have cares and sorrows and are perhaps utterly wretched and forlorn you will some night inevitably dream that you're approaching your home you will see it shining and glittering in the loveliest colors. Lovely and gracious figures will come to meet you, and then you will suddenly discover that you are ragged, naked, and covered with dust. An indescribable feeling of shame and fear overcomes you. You try to cover yourself to hide, and you wake up bathed in sweat. As long as humanity exists, this will be the dream of the care-laden, tempest-tossed man, and thus Homer has drawn the situation from the profoundest death of the eternal nature of humanity wow yeah i just i love that character.
1: yeah that is that's really amazing yeah and that's illustrative of a lot of things that freud does Yeah, like,
0: Freud. he gets a lot of his inspiration yeah. from history and mythology mm-hmm. and that brings us to perhaps one of the most famous inspirations
1: mm.
0: he draws from mythology
1: you're hinting at the oedipus complex yep yeah so that, is, that actually is very similar to what we were just talking about previously as well. So Oedipus is a, is a play by Sophocles, and the, kind of the gist of the play is that there's this prophecy that this child, Oedipus, will one day grow up to kill his father and overthrow him and then marry his mother. So to counteract this prophecy, the father throws him out and kind of leaves him for dead, and then eventually through the act of the play, Oedipus comes upon a stranger who doesn't know he's his, 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 who is his father, kills him, marries his wife who happens to be his mother, and so the idea here is that a very common, like unacceptable wish, is the wish to have sex with your mother. So, and the thing that I think was initially struck me and was very repulsive is it seems like such a like an incongruous thing that I. I had difficulty relating to or finding relation to in really any of my patients. but really the 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 thing that I don't think I realized at first is that it's it's like an infantile understanding of of sex. He gives an example later on of like um, like having dreams of like killing relatives, and the example being like you know, you're a child. And I I actually, there's a video of me doing this exact thing. Like my, my parents brought my, I'm I'm the oldest. My parents brought my little brother home for the first time. And they, of course, recorded it. And I was like, oh, I want to, Mackle. I used to call myself Mackle and refer to myself. Mackle, hold Joey. Mackle, hold Joey. And I was like grabbing at him in like a very rough way. And then I couldn't hold him. And then everyone was looking at Joey. And I was like looking around. And I like, looked through the camera. Mackle, bang, Joey. (laughs) And it's like, so like my, my infantile desire It it, like expressed at its root was I wanna kill my brother because I want all the attention myself. Now that's that even then that was an unacceptable wish and I didn't do it. But perhaps my dream would have been that I would kill him or that something would happen to him.
0: Freud doesn't name the Oedipus Complex until much later, Hmm. but this is the first instance where the idea of the Oedipus Complex appears in his works. And yeah, it's kinda like it's about your love the love mm. towards the mother and wanting the love of the mother
1: exclusively and,
0: and seeing the father as a rival and being jealous and wanting to get your rid of that rival. And he says, you know, this is a true wish as a child, you did want your father dead, but you don't really understand what death means. Even you think the punishment for everything is death.
1: Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. know, actually weirdly hearing you explain it for like, to me, in this conversation, it's a very male-centric wish. It doesn't make sense for a female,
0: exactly. And this is why I feel like we are unqualified <laughs> all this because we haven't read Freud's uh, three essays on sexuality, but
1: or his critics, or or, or the yeah, people yeah. who followed him. Um, but
0: I think essentially, my understanding is Freud says that for a girl, it's different. The development of sexual desires. And essentially, the first object for the girl is a mother, which is then transferred to the father. I think that's what Freud theorized later in his Hmm.
1: works. Interesting.
0: So one of the criticisms levied at Freud is, um, oh, Freud thinks that everything is about sex. Hmm. And there is a section in the book where Freud essentially says, well, a box is a vagina, an oven is a vagina. Yeah a clarinet is a penis and a tobacco pipe is a penis and you know, he says all these things are penises and vaginas. Which I I get why that would seem to people that, oh, Freud thinks everything is about sex, but it's not. Even Freud goes on to vehemently oppose this concept and he says, No, I don't think that all the dreams are about sex and I don't mention that in my interpretation of dream books, which is true. Like, he doesn't say that all the dreams about sex, although a lot of them are.
1: Yeah, he I think like his, his ultimate argument is that, you know, the dreams are about our unconscious desires and like some of the most significant sources of like unconscious motivate motivations are like sex, death, basic human drives. And so sex is a big part of that.
0: Yeah, because like... it's an unacceptable because yes. it's an unacceptable wish, and one of Freud's theories is that because this wish hasn't ful- been fulfilled, there's that desire in the unconscious that needs release, or it'll bubble up and release somewhere, mm. essentially. And so, the, one of the ways where it finds release is through dreams, even though it's disguised as something else. So it finds its release through dreams and it's through this release that you don't have that pent up i guess desire It's very interesting because freud has this discussion about should we be held responsible like morally for our actions and our dreams
2: Mm.
0: i mean what do you think
1: i so having having read it freud says no he he comments on some previous people who think that yes you should like a virtuous person wouldn't even it wouldn't even occur to them to do you know, to kill this person in their dream or to steal in their dream or to, you know, cheat on their wife in their dream. So that there's some underlying reflection of your true unconscious desire. Um, But Freud says no. And maybe one example that he gives that is like, the, the perfect setup for this discussion is there, there's like a legend of a, of a Roman emperor who executes one of his confidants because they had a dream that in the dream they had killed the emperor. And so the emperor thinks that this person, though they're saying that they didn't want to do it unconsciously, that is something that is on their mind. So therefore, they must be a threat. What does Freud say to that?
0: Freud, Freud says, first of all, you're looking at the manifest content. <laughs> so you would have to figure out what the latent content is. And once you know the latent content, it's it's more the actions, what do you do next? So it makes sense that people have resistance to talking about their dreams because they don't want to bring to light all their desires that are unacceptable, things that they can be condemned for, mm. in a sense. but Freud is saying that interpretation, getting your dreams interpreted, getting analyzed is important because then you're aware of what the interpretation is. You're aware that you have these unconscious desires and they're not just gonna bubble up and find release some other way. You're aware of it and you, you're able to deal with it. One of the criticisms that Freud got was, how do you know that what you bring up during your sessions is actually what you dream? Don't most people forget all their dreams? So, how do you know what you're even interpreting? Yeah. And And... Freud says, well, that's exactly the point. (laughs) Yeah. Because dreams aren't necessarily about the content of the dreams, they're about the interpretation of the dreams. And so, what you bring up during your session. Why are you bringing that up? Because Mm -hmm. that was significant for you Mm -hmm. in some way. He goes into, well, here's this random number I saw in my dream. And here is all the significance attached to it. How do you know that's the random number in your dream? Well, even if you were to come up with a random number while you're awake, thinking about the dream, why does that random number come to mind? And what are your associations with it? So essentially in retelling your dream, that free association process, is the whole point of the dream work.
1: So really, really, at the end of the day, the, the dream is important, but really it's only in important in so much as it gives us clues into your unconscious. And even the act of doing the dream work is part of that clue.
0: Exactly. So with the publication of the interpretation of dreams, the earliest psychoanalysts did use dreams as a jumping off point into how that reflected what was in your unconscious. So yes, they did analyze dreams very early on, but that's not where the field of uh, psychoanalysis went. Dreams kind of fell out of significance in terms of what was being used to analyze in the sessions, and later on it became more about the transference. and what that reflected about the unconscious. Mm-hmm.
1: In other words, the relationship between the patient and the
0: exactly. analyst. So even though psychoanalysts don't use dreams, don't really interpret dreams As much. Anymore,
1: Sometimes it might yeah. come up,
0: but but it's more about the contribution to the field where um, it brought up the idea of the unconscious. Yeah. So how do you treat our patient's dreams in your, your practice?
1: Um, so short answer is I don't, I ask a lot about nightmares from like PTSD and often like if a patient brings up a dream, I'll like ask them if that's a memory from their past and that will give me information. But I mean, honestly, if someone like tells me about a dream, I'll I'll just probably say like, Oh, that's weird. What was yesterday? Like like something like that. What, What do you do?
0: actually our patients bring up their dreams a lot and i don't know if it's from the idea in popular culture where patients are telling their analysts their dreams that they get this idea that their dreams are significant and they should bring it up to us but it's just something naturally that happens and it kind of puts me it puts me in freud's shoes where i'm like oh i totally understand why he would take dreams as a starting off point, as mm. the unconscious, because that is something when patients are just you know, talking, that's something that comes up and patients are fascinated by their own dreams. And sometimes they want us to tell them if it means something. And yeah. I, I, I think it's not just patients. I think it's in everyday conversations where you're at a dinner party or you know, you're just getting together with your friends and you just feel compelled to tell them about a fascinating dream you had the other night and universally i feel like dreams are not interesting except to the person who
2: dreams
0: (laughs) i I usually get bored when patients tell me their dreams or other people tell me their dreams but even so i feel compelled to tell people my dreams a lot like i tell you my dreams a lot
1: yeah yeah i think your your approach is probably better I, i should be more curious i guess the like the old adage with like psychoanalysis like follow the affect so if like if it's important to them it should be important to you in your discussion and that makes a lot of sense to me
0: so that's my takeaway maybe I should explore it more when hmm. patients bring up their dreams I just feel like we don't do that because there's not a lot of time right The psychoanalysts they had so much time to discuss patients years dreams with, exactly with their patients but when patients bring up their dreams, I usually want to change the subject because that tends to derail my interview where suddenly we're spending 20 minutes of a 30-minute follow-up talking about their dream. And so I think that's one of the reasons why we're not routinely discussing their dreams. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, I could definitely see that. I, f- I find myself doing the, the same kind of thing, steering them away from talking about their dreams. <laughs> I want to know, how are you functioning today? That is that is what I ultimately care about which maybe i'm just not curious enough
0: the way it's set up modern day you get like 30 minutes per follow-up an hour per intake mm-hmm. so which is a doesn't... lot
1: compared to other models
0: yeah so we don't have the time for the psychoanalytic approach but you know has is shown in freud's works that's what a lot of the patients need i remember thinking before that maybe freud's patients they're generally well-to-do educated, and they're able to do all the psychodynamic work. And I felt that our patients weren't functioning the same. But now that I think about it, I wonder if we don't give our patients enough credit. They don't have enough time to... We don't have enough time. And we don't have enough time for them to allow for that sort of self-reflection. In this book, I realized how exactly how sick some of Freud's patients were, like people who weren't able to leave their houses for years, even with these patients who are sick, these patients with hysteria, it, he was able to delve deeper with them. And I, it's a it's type of relationship that we don't have with our patients anymore to be able to delve deeper into these sorts of things.
1: So ultimately, I guess, to just to kind of take a step back, the the book touches on a lot of different topics. Just to sum it up in one phrase that I I couldn't help thinking the entire time I was reading this was, a dream is a wish your heart makes. And that is the point of the book. And the the idea is getting at what is the reason for the wish fulfillment in the dream and how does that give you clues to the unconscious? And, you know, other things we talked about um, in the book include like, the ways that your dream dissimulates that information and kind of hides it and disguises unacceptable wishes. Both the mechanisms that happens, and why you find those things unacceptable. It also talks a lot about the importance of childhood experiences and those very, very long ago childhood wishes that still may be part of your unconscious processes. And all of that leads into how that is involved in the analysis of someone's current unconscious state and how that can be used for psychoanalysis to treat whatever unconscious conflict they have.
0: To wrap it up, what would you say is your overall takeaway?
1: Um, I think on, I, the theory was really interesting to me, and it was something that I hadn't thought about much. Honestly, the, the, the biggest reaction that I have was just the historical relevance of this. I mean, there is like no better way to understand someone than for them to tell you your dreams. And like, this is like one of the most important people in the entire last century telling us his dreams. And it's like such a unique, intimate look at Freud's psychology and the time he lived in, just like all the mundanity of, of going to the store and worrying about promotion and all of that. Like that is just fascinating. So ultimately that was my favorite part. That was, that was what I enjoyed the most out of this.
0: I, w- I would say so too, because it's kind of like we we know what Freud's theories are. Um, at the time, they were really innovative, but to us, we, we've we heard like the id, ego, superego stuff, so we know about his theories. And for me, it was also like seeing how well read Freud is, mm-hmm. all his references to literature. His just philosophizing about how he thought human nature was was really interesting and just his vulnerability
1: yeah this was a really fascinating book to read um despite how long and dense it was how long it took me to get through it um thank you for having this discussion
0: well this was a very interesting discussion thank you so much for listening to the history of madness podcast
1: you can find us on your podcast platform of choice and while you're there leave us a like it really helps us grow the show